Welcome to Glendale Christian Church. My name is Andrew Kirshner. I'm lead minister here at GCC, and I'm excited to get to see the entire church family together. We continue our study in 1 Timothy today, and we know that the key verses to our series in 1 Timothy are found in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where the Apostle Paul will write to Timothy saying, I write these instructions to you so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth, and we know, as we've been going through 1 Timothy chapter 1, that sound doctrine is the pillar and foundation of the Christian life. Today, we see that accepting the gospel is the pillar and foundation of eternal life. There are lots of people that are concerned with eternal life. There's an entire movement devoted towards keeping people young keeping people alive, keeping people vibrant. You see, death is an enemy against which we all struggle, but to whom we will all succumb, at least if you're thinking about it like the world does. Christianity is different. Christianity offers eternal life, and that doesn't mean that this body will endure. No, 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 no. What eternal life means to the Christian is that we will receive life such that we will persist forever. We will exist everlastingly, but not in this body. We will receive a better body. When Jesus Christ comes back, he will judge the living and the dead, and everyone will receive a resurrection body like his, and Jesus will recreate the heavens and the earth, and we will live in a physical heaven on earth with God everlasting. But eternal life for the Christian doesn't have to wait until Jesus returns to start. In fact, Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 10, that he came to give us abundant, abundant eternal life. He came to give us life to the full. And by accepting the Gospel, we have the pillar and foundation of eternal life. If you've got your Bibles, would you please turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 20. I'd love for you to follow along in your text or to follow along using the screens behind me. Let's read the text together this morning. 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight. 
holding on to the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. And so our text this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, explains that accepting the gospel is the pillar and foundation for eternal life. The life that we want in God is not like the life that we see in the world around us. The life that we see in the world around us is a life filled with strife, filled with antagonism, with anger and disappointment. There are people who are not thankful, but rather are entitled. The world in which we live is a world of entitlement, not of thanksgiving. The world in which we live is not a world in which praise is given to God, but rather praise is sought out for one's own self. The world in which we live offers a life that's not filled with evangelism for Jesus' sake, to make disciples, but rather is filled with self-aggrandizement, where people seek to draw more unto themselves so that they look really good. The world in which we live is not one that arms us for the spiritual battle before us. Instead, the world in which we live is one that says, life is best lived in subjugation, under the authoritarian rule of sin and under the rule of humans. And we get to choose. We get to choose what sort of life we want to live. I want eternal life. I want to live forever in the grace of Lord Jesus. I want to be filled with his grace so abundantly that life has no choice but to flow over in faith and love, whereby I can live a life that is filled with thanksgiving, a life that is filled with praise, a life that is filled with redemption, with evangelism, with praise to God Almighty, one that is filled with fighting the good fight until I live in heaven. I do not wait until I get my resurrection body and I show up in heaven to start living eternal life. We need to start right now. So let's look at how eternal life comes to be. Let's investigate this text a line at a time, and let's go by verse by verse to figure out the truth. So here we are, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. I give thanks. Thankfulness should be the default setting and posture of our lives. Everything we do should be oriented towards thanks. Thanksgiving should be continual and heartfelt. But notice that the thanks that we offer is given to Jesus our Lord, to Christ our Lord. That means our thanksgiving is based on one hand on the nature of God who's given me strength. And on the other hand, our thanksgiving is based on God's actions. So if we rightly understand who God is, and we know the nature of God fully, we will be thankful. We're thankful just for his nature as the perfect being, the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, eternal, necessary, and triune master of heaven and earth. This perfect being has done so much for us. Obviously, he's provided our salvation. 
But beyond that, he's also given us strength. And that strength that God gives us is seen in the person of the Holy Spirit. When we accept by faith and we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, we receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not a spirit of timidity, but rather a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. And the strength that we receive from the Holy Spirit enables us to grow powerful spiritually, regardless of our physical condition. We grow powerful spiritually. We're able to pray, and we're able to be mighty warriors in the spiritual realm, regardless of how we interact in the physical realm. We're also strengthened with love. After power comes love. You see, only through the grace of Jesus can we demonstrate love to a world around us. Without the grace of Jesus, the love that we have, it's not unconditional, and it's not based on anything good in us. It's based on our desire to get things from other people. The world in which we live is totally conditionally based. We will love so long as you stay young and pretty. We will love so long as you stay fit and active. We will love so long as you do what I want. We will love so long as you honor me. We will, and we put all these conditions on it. The love that springs from the strength that the Holy Spirit gives us enables us to see the world the same way God sees the world. And we can love the world with no expectation of reciprocity. Rather, we love because he first loved us. And so our love to the world is itself reciprocal. And this is part of the strength. But the third aspect of the strength given to us through the Holy Spirit is self-discipline. We no longer have to be undisciplined like the world around us. Instead, we can grow in self-discipline. We can look to God's word regularly. We can train our bodies, for physical training is of some value, and we can make sure that our disciple-making prowess increases all the more. Yes, accepting the gospel is the pillar and foundation of eternal life, a life of thanksgiving. Accepting the gospel is the pillar and foundation of eternal life, a life that includes trustworthy service. You see, when we give thanks to God, not just for who he is, Lord, and not just for what he does, giving me strength, but he considers me trustworthy and appointing me to his service, says the Apostle Paul. Now, this is a really interesting word, the word trustworthy here. If you look at your translation, some of you might have the word faithful instead of trustworthy. This makes perfect sense because the Greek word that gets translated into faithful is the same Greek word that gets translated into trustworthy. It is pistis. It comes, pistos. It comes from the root word of faith. And faith includes belief trust, and loving obedience. So, of course, we live a life that is faithful, a life that is trustworthy. And he has considered me trustworthy for his service. Paul was made ready for God's service, and he was considered trustworthy. But you know what? We don't need to be smart to be trustworthy for God's service. We don't need to be talented to be faithful to God's service. We don't even need to be gifted to be faithful for God's service. Instead, all we need to do is be ready and willing to serve. But there are a lot of people out there 
who view service as more of a voluntary thing rather than an expectation. Service is not voluntary in the household of God. In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth, service is part of being a family member. I tell my kids sometime, the reason that we do this is because you are part of the family. Teamwork makes the dream work. We have to be together. So yes, you're going to empty the dishwasher. Yes, you're going to walk the dog. Yes, you're going to do these different things. Even though I could do them better than you, we are going to serve together. It's the household of God. It's part of my responsibility to train my family how to be ready for service. And that's exactly how it is in the household of God. But I think that there are some people who look at service uh, kind of more like a diet. Kind of more like a diet where they say, you know what, I'll start that diet tomorrow. You don't get to wait until tomorrow to start that diet. You don't get to wait until tomorrow to start serving. Some people say this in regards to service. When I get married or when I have children, then I'll serve. If you put conditions on your nature, on your activity, your temporal life, on your service, then you are doing a foolhardy and foolish action. That's not what service is. Service is understood in terms of fear, obligation, and finally in terms of love. You become a Christian and you're fearful of God and you have fearful obedience. But then you recognize that you are a friend of God and so then you recognize that there's obligatory obedience. Jesus wants every single one of us to serve. In fact, serving regularly is one of the covenants that we expect every member at Glendale to pursue as they join the church. We expect every member to attend regularly, serve the body, give generously, submit to leadership, and promote unity. There's an expectation of service. And so, if we cannot be faithful in the small things, how could we ever be faithful in the big things? You might think, I don't know if I'm worthy to serve. One of my favorite church fathers, St. Augustine, said this, God does not choose a person who is worthy, but by the act of choosing him, God makes him worthy. Jesus has come to earth to die for your sins. Jesus came to earth to save sinners. That includes all of us. He chose us. And when we accept his grace poured abundantly out into our lives, we are saved. And by choosing us, God makes us worthy. There is no woman, no man, no child in this room watching this sermon that is unworthy of serving God. Make your service faithful and trustworthy. Well, verse 13 continues the truth, explaining that even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Paul has tremendous humility writing to his protege, Timothy. And he says, look, I was these things, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. And he was. Paul was a bully. Paul was known as Saul, and Paul was a Pharisee. 
That means he was a religious elite. He was better than any of us at following the rules. He was on the fast track to join the Jewish Supreme Court known as the Sanhedrin because he was part of this group called the Pharisees who were obsessed with following the law accurately. And Paul even describes his zealousness for the law saying that he was without equal. He was so good at following the law. And part of the law made him recognize that there's only one God. And then there was this guy named Jesus who was claiming to be God. And Paul couldn't understand how these things went together. He knew that the Father was God. He couldn't understand how Jesus could be God. He didn't understand this sort of thing. And so, in his rabid desire to follow the truth of God and to be faithful to God, he persecuted the Christians. In fact, Saul was the first murderer of any Christian martyr. He received the coats and he took legal responsibility as the other guys threw stones at Stephen's head until he died. That was Saul. He took legal responsibility. And in the book of Acts, it describes how he went out and breathed out murderous threats against the church, trying to get the believers to blaspheme. Paul was a blasphemer. And he tried to get other people to blaspheme by saying, no, you're right, Jesus isn't Lord. And he tried to get Christians to blaspheme, to chuck him in jail or murder them. He was a bully. He was a bully. And yet, Paul knew that his past did not disqualify him from God's service. God's grace and mercy were enough even to cover him and make him capable of serving God, and we should never allow our past to prevent us serving God in the future. There is no man or woman alive who has sinned so egregiously that they cannot be saved by God's grace. We should never feel like our past makes us unable to be used by God. But Paul did act in ignorance, You see, there's a difference between willful sin and ignorant sin. Ignorant sin, on one hand, is when you're trying to do what's right for God. You want to do what's right for God. You think you're doing what's right for God, and it turns out that it's not, and that's sin. So Saul, Paul, thought he was doing right by God by killing Christians, but it was not the case. Then there's willful sin, and willful sin is when you know exactly what God wants and you choose to do the opposite. We are guilty of both. All of us have tried to do what God wants and realized it's too hard, and all of us have given up and decided that we will headlong pursue that which is sinful. We have done both, but understand this. The more willful a man's sin, the less likely his repentance Do you understand that truth? If you act in ignorance or unbelief, the truth can get to you and you can respond in repentance quickly. But if you know the truth and yet willfully sin, that makes it less likely that repentance will follow. For the person who willfully sins is searing his conscience. And therefore, because he has no good conscience, which is based on no good truthful faith, he continues to persist in his sinfulness. We need something better. The grace of our Lord Jesus. It's the grace of our Lord Jesus that's poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's what we need, and that's what grace is. Grace is the free, unmerited gift of God 
We don't do anything to deserve grace. If you could earn grace, it would not be grace. It would be your wage. If you could obey your way into God's good graces, it would no longer be grace at all. It would be your just reward. No man can obey his way to God. All men must be saved by the abundant pouring of God's grace into our life. That's our lot as mankind. All of us needs God's grace. And this word, abundantly, it's very, very cool in the Greek language. The first part of it is hyper. It's superabundant grace. It's not just grace poured out. It's abundant grace. It's super, hyperactive grace. It's so much grace that it overflows our lives. And the result of divine grace flooding our lives is faith. We respond to God's grace with faith. That's what Paul says to this same Ephesian congregation in his letter to the church in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, it's by grace you've been saved. Through faith. When the grace saves us, it's the response of faith that gets us to accept the gospel. This is important, for accepting the gospel is the pillar and foundation of eternal life. The way you accept the gospel is to allow God's grace to be poured on you through faith. You're saved by grace through faith. You believe the truth. You trust the one who's done it, and you're ready to obey. It's head, heart, and hands. And the love that follows faith can only be supernatural from God. The love that the world offers is not agape love. The love that the world offers is completely conditional. It's mistaken, and it gets people manipulatively to do things they ought not to do. But the love that flows out of our lives when grace overwhelms our lives is one built on forgiveness and compassion. And these are only available to the Christian. Christian love is truly unique in the world around us. The grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly. So here's the truth. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. The word trustworthy, again, could be faithful. Here's a faithful saying that deserves full acceptance. They are interchangeable. Faithfulness and trustworthiness go hand in hand. And here it is. This is the point of everything. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the heart of everything. The reason Jesus came was to save sinners. He says in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, that Jesus says that it's not the righteous that I've come for, but the sinners. The doctor doesn't heal, this, uh, heal the healthy, but the sick. I have come for the sinners. A prerequisite for Jesus saving you is you being a sinner. You have to be a sinner. You have to be a sinner in order to be saved. This is really, really important. And Paul is going to say, I'm the worst of all sinners. Paul has humility here, but he doesn't just talk about sinfulness in the past tense. He doesn't say, I was the worst. He says, I am the worst. Paul recognizes that he has no illusion of his own righteousness. It all comes from God. So Jesus came into the world. The way that Jesus came into the world is glorious. Here's kind of how you can describe the gospel to somebody who might not understand it, or if you are looking for a refresher. This is the gospel. You start with God. God is perfect. God is perfect. 
God has all the knowledge, all the power, all the love. He's always been, he has to be, he's three in one, and he made everything you see. And the very best thing God ever made was us, human beings. And we're the very best thing that God ever made because we are made in God's image. And that means God made us with rationality, with intentionality. We can think and we can reason and we can choose. And God, who's perfect, said to us, made in his image, I've given you paradise. Do whatever you want except for this one thing. And God said there's only one thing that's off limits. But because we have the ability to reason and think and choose, we chose poorly. And we chose to do the one thing that God said not to do. And by choosing to do what God says not to do, that's like shooting at a target and missing the bullseye. We've sinned. And that sin separated us from God. We were suddenly apart from him. His perfection and our imperfection were incompatible. God could no longer be around us even though he made us in his image because we sinned. Sin is anytime we ignorantly or willfully go against what God wants. Anytime we think something he doesn't want. Anytime we say something he doesn't want. Anytime we do something he doesn't want us to, that's sin. And that separates us from him. And no matter how hard we try to think the right things, to say the right words, or do the right things, we can never get back to God. No matter how hard we try, we can't obey our way back into God's presence. And we have tried awfully hard. And yet, God wants to be in our presence. He made us in his image. And so the story of the Bible is the story of God pulling himself pulling us back to himself. God started by shouting and saying, go to the land I'll show you. And he burned before them, directing them out of slavery. And he was told to be carried around by them in a little box. And then they even built him a temple. And his holy presence was in this temple. But it was never good enough. For during all this time, people were right with God, but only temporarily by sacrifice. God explained, the life of a blood the lifeblood of an animal is for atonement, and without the shedding of blood, there is no sacrifice for sins. And so, the only way that we could be right with God, and we were separated from him, was to take an animal that had no sin and sacrifice it. But that only made us right with God for a little bit of time. And we had to keep doing this, and this accordion effect, this yo-yo effect, prevented us from ever being fully right with God. And then, everything changed. God the Father sent God the Son, we know him as Christ Jesus, to earth to save sinners. Jesus stepped off the throne of heaven, entered humanity, is God in the flesh, and lived amongst all those who were sinful. The perfect God became a person, became a human being, and showed us the perfect way to live. He never sinned. He never missed the mark. He hit the bullseye and split the arrow. Every thought, every word, every action, always. And then... He went to the cross and he died for us. And the reason he did that was simple. He came to save sinners. But the only way for anyone to be saved is through the shedding of blood. But the only way for the shedding of blood to fully cover a person is if another person who was sinless could cover a different sinner. But Jesus didn't come just to save one sinner. 
He came to save all the sinners. And the only way that Jesus' blood could cover all the sinners is if Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus came into the world to save sinners because he existed as God outside of the world long before that. And as he died on the cross, the cosmic swap happened. We, in our sinfulness, and Christ, in his perfect righteousness, traded places. And that's what the Bible tells us. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And by becoming the righteousness of God, we are saved. This is the gospel. And this is the pillar and foundation of eternal life. And if you want to receive that eternal life, all you have to do is believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. And if you do believe this, then you will receive eternal life. This is the starting point. But it never ends there. It never ends there. Because all of us get to understand what our sinfulness looks like. And yet, because of our sinfulness, we can do just as the Apostle Paul says. But for that very reason, Jesus coming into the earth to save sinners, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul recognized that his experience was the pattern for others. God would display his immense patience. He would withhold the wrathful judgment. Rather than pour any, pouring it out on us, he would offer to pour grace out on us instead. And Paul is the example. And if we embrace what God has done for us, then we too can be saved. No man can say that he has sinned so badly that God can't save him. In fact, one of the great preachers of all time who lived in the 1800s was a man named Charles Spurgeon. And this is what he said. Despair's head is cut off and stuck on a pole by the salvation of the chief of sinners. No man can say that he is too great a sinner to be saved because the chief of sinners was saved 1800 years ago. For us, that would be 2000 years ago. If the ringleader, the chief of the gang, has been washed in the precious blood and is now saved, why not I? Why not you? There is no person who sinned worse than Paul. Nobody was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent bully like him. Killing the first Christian, destroying the church, tearing down the faith, causing Christians to blaspheme, and God's grace saved him. It can save you too. And this is what we share with the world around us. It can save you too. So now, because of this, we burst out into praise. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Accepting the gospel is the foundation and pillar of eternal life, a life of redemption, and a life of evangelism, where we share our story mixed with Christ's story. And we praise God and give him glory because of it. Here's how you can do it. You can just put yourself in the sinner's spot. It's easy to do because we're all sinners. So when Paul says, the grace of God was abundantly poured out on me, you just share your story. It goes like this. The grace of God was abundantly poured out on me. 
You see, when I was young, I was an atheist. I was a sinner. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I wasn't violent physically because I didn't want to throw hands with anyone. I'm kind of a softy when it comes to fighting physically, but I was ready to fight intellectually, and I made sure that every stupid kid in my high school class, and by the way, all high school kids that are Christian are stupid compared to older kids because they haven't learned all the stuff yet. And so I thought every Christian was stupid because I hung out with high school kids and they couldn't answer my questions. And so what I would do is I would find them and I would pluck them and I would destroy their faith. I would ask them questions that they didn't know how to answer. I would raise arguments that they were ill-prepared to address and I would destroy their faith. I was really good at it too. I was captain of the debate team, captain of the mock trial team. I really knew how to argue. And it was like dropping a bloody-legged man in the ocean next to Jaws. I was ready to go on the attack. And anytime some little Christian kid invited me to church, oh, I would come up with mean, rude, and horrible ways to say no, and then I would seek to destroy their faith. And to my eternal shame, there are people to this day who are outside of the church and outside of Christ because of things that I said. I have to live with that. I've reached out to every single one of them, but they've chosen not to embrace the household of God. But I share with them this. God's abundant grace was poured out on me. I finally met a man who was smarter than I was, who was a Christian, and who was strong and compassionate at the same time, willing to take the time to listen to all my questions, to hear all my arguments, and he knew how to answer them intellectually. And once he knocked down all of my intellectual arguments, there was no reason left for me to say no to God. I had built up lots of reasons, lots of walls of pretension, lots of arguments against the knowledge of God, and he destroyed all of them. And he said, if you want to be consistent, and if you want to be smart, you had better accept this truth. And that day, I accepted the gospel, and I entered eternal life. And it's the same offer that's available for everyone we know. Just talk about your story and how you accepted God's grace and then offer that to them. For by doing so, you can live for the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, and you can give him honor and glory forever in everything you do. But there's a warning. It's not just that accepting the gospel is the pillar and foundation of eternal life, which is also a life of praise, but you better be careful. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you might fight the good faith. Paul gave Timothy the instruction, the command, to stay in Ephesus and command certain people not to teach false doctrine. He was there to fight the good fight, and he was told to be reminded of the prophecies made against about him. You see, when he was a young man, the apostle Paul was able to see this young man named Timothy, and everybody said, this guy, Timothy... He's so smart, he's so sharp, he's so great, he'll be wonderful helper for you. And everybody commended him to Paul. And so Paul took him along and saw that they were right. The prophecies made about him were true. And Paul told Timothy to remember them so that you can fight the good fight. Because we are in a fight. And accepting the gospel, which is the pillar and foundation of eternal life, means living a life of fighting the good fight until our life in heaven. 
We have to fight the good fight because there are those, even in leadership sometimes, wolves in sheep clothing, that's what Paul says will happen to the church of Ephesus and they must be knocked back. There are those who won't put up with sound doctrine and they must be taught the truth. There are those who would rather hear myths or old wives' tales and we must knock those foolish fables out and present the truth without distorting the word of God without deception, without secrecy, and without shame. Rather, we must present the word of God plainly. And that is fighting the good fight. Whether you're a preacher or a teacher or a mom or a dad, you are to present the gospel clearly. First at home, then in the congregation, and then to the world about you. Because God values my family, my membership, and my invitation. They are to hold on to the faith in good conscience. But some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Paul knows what it is to live in a shipwreck. He's gone through about four of them by the time he writes this letter to Timothy. And the shipwreck is no good. You feel like you're drowning. And that's exactly what those feel like when they reject the good faith and the good conscience. You reject faith by saying no to the gospel. By saying no to the pillar and foundation of eternal life. You reject it by saying no to sound doctrine. And you reject it by being kicked out of the pillar and foundation of the truth, the church of the living God. And if you choose to reject the truth, you shipwreck your faith. And Paul even gives an example. Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom Paul handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now this is a scary concept. Paul hands two former Christian leaders over to Satan so that Satan can teach them not to blaspheme. What this means is that the church is the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth, and it provides protection. When Christians gather together, the Holy Spirit who protects us is there. But Paul had these guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, disfellowshipped. They were told to leave the church in Ephesus because they would not stop teaching false doctrine, and they were leading people astray. And so by fighting the good fight, they had to be handed over to Satan. And what this means is that they were kicked out of the church, and now they live in the realm of Satan. Did you know that the Bible calls Satan the god of this age, the prince of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air? And if you're outside of the church and its protection, you're in the realm of Satan, and he can do his worst. But Paul was hopeful that Hymenaeus and Alexander were not just receiving punitive punishment, but were receiving correction. For if they experienced life outside of the protection of the church, maybe they would come to their senses and maybe they would stop blaspheming by promoting false doctrine. It's the hope. It's the hope that I have for all of us. For I'm concerned that all of us achieve eternal life, but the way to eternal life is to accept the gospel, the pillar and foundation of eternal life. But when you accept that eternal life, you realize that it promotes a life of thanksgiving. We thank God for who he is and for what he's done. It's also a life of faithful service. We are always ready to serve. We're trustworthy in our service. But it's also a life of redemption. Being saved by God's grace, his abundant grace pouring over us. And then it leads to a life of evangelism. For we share that same message of hope with the lost and dying world around us. We recognize that it's a life of praise. Because of God's grace, we have no choice but to praise the immortal, invisible, only God, King, forever and ever. 
And then it is a life of fighting the good fight. And we fight every false argument, take every thought captive to Christ until life in heaven. And then, even though our eternal life has already started, then when we receive our resurrection body, our eternal life in heaven can finally be realized. Accepting the gospel is the pillar and foundation of eternal life. It's my prayer that you will. And it's my hope that this week you will do a number of things. I challenge you this week to take on these tasks. First of all, read the book of 1 Timothy, just chapter 1 and chapter 2 every day. Read 1 Timothy 1 and 1 Timothy 2 every day this week. And let the word of God penetrate your hearts. But second, I want you to pray. Thanking God for his strength, his grace, his mercy, and his patience. For it's his grace that saves, his strength that makes us powerful, loving, and self-disciplined. His mercy that prompts his action, and his patience that delays his wrath. And then I want you to contemplate your trustworthiness to his service. I want you to contemplate, how do you serve? What does your service look like at Glendale Christian Church? Have you signed up for the Say Yes campaign? Are you helping in the little kids area? We still need some teachers. We still need some helpers. Are you signing up in the adult Sunday morning Say Yes campaign? We still need some greeters. We still need some computer check-in folk. We need more people to help. I want you to contemplate the trustworthiness of your service. And then I want you to share. This week, I want you to share the gospel. I want you to allow your mess to become God's message. So I want you to share with someone your sinfulness, and then I want you to explain God's message of redemption and his grace. And if you can do those four things this week, then we're going to be very ready for the sermon next week. Would you